Hello and welcome to the fortnightly Danube Institute podcast. I'm John O'Sullivan, the president of the Danube Institute. We're based here in Budapest and we're a think tank that brings together interesting thinkers and doers from academia, politics, the arts, the media and business to explore contemporary debates. We have the goal of not only challenging old orthodoxies with new ideas, but perhaps also tempering new orthodoxies with old ideas. We hope you enjoy this podcast, which is co-hosted by two of our fellows, Dr. Callum Nicholson and Dr. David Dewsbury. And now I'll hand over to them. Well, welcome to this new Danube Institute podcast series hosted by me, Callum Nicholson, and David Dewsbury. Today, our guest is Paul Gilfillan. Paul's a senior lecturer at Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh, and he's a sociologist with a background and training in anthropology. And he's worked on Scottish nationalism, the sociology of Christianity, and he also teaches, among many other things, an introduction to academic life at the University of uh, Queen Margaret. Uh, he's also currently a visiting fellow at the Matthias Corvinus Collegium here in Hungary. And so, Paul, I've known you, you know, a few weeks now, and uh, very sad to know you're leaving in a couple of weeks. Yeah, in a month, um, Callum, yeah. But um, it's been um, a very interesting, uh, intriguing five months. But uh, many thanks for the invitation from yourself and David. No, it's great. I think we both wanted to get you in here before, uh, uh, before <laughs> you went. So thanks so much for coming. Um, you know, we've been talking the last few months, and, and David too, we've all, all been talking. And all three of us are academics by training. And I think that we all have views on what's happening in the contemporary culture. Mm. We obviously live in very polarized times. Uh, and, uh, but it often feels to me, certainly, that so much of this culture we're living in is sort of quite frothy. The sort of, if you see the culture as like an ocean, there are these white horses and everyone's noticing them. And, mm. and the left attack, the, you know, the, the left think the right of the disease and they are the cure. The right think the left of the disease and they are the cure. And I think as academics, perhaps what would be interesting to talk about is the deeper sort of tides and currents of this ocean rather than get caught in this left-right uh, sort of um, discussion. And uh, as a consequence, I thought it'd be interesting to, to get you in because, I mean, we talked the other night and you have some fascinating views on some of the deeper currents. And I know David, obviously, is a historian of ideas and, and these ideas. And uh, so it's very, uh, it's a good framing, I think, for us mm -hmm. to bring the three of us together. So, um, but maybe first, Paul, tell us about, about you and, uh, and what's your academic background? What are your themes of interest? Well, I was just mentioning um, to you, Carlo and David, that one of my, at a very existential and personal level, the whole idea of uh, um, <clears throat> you know, what, what kind of knowledge is possible, a knowledge that is, you know, um, that allows one to become an agent in one's own life or a wider society. Um, at an existential biographical level, that's something that goes very deep with me. At a more prosaic professional level, I teach um, third-year sociology students um, research methods courses. So absolutely fundamental to my professional life is to hopefully get to be below the frothy surface to look at you know, basic questions, what do we want to know? What don't we know? What do we have to do in order to come to know? So that's a very humbling experience. It's a very um, demanding, um, you know, it's to kind of go through the nuts and bolts of producing um, new and original data sets, therefore new insights. Um, that's kind of what I do for a living, uh, especially with my third year students. So yes, the, the kind of contestation about knowledge claims is something that's um, of deep interest to me. It's interesting you mention uh, it being humbling because it seems to me that often um, humility often seems to be a disposition that's somewhat somewhat lack, lacking in the culture now, particularly new generations coming through. We were talking recently about how uh, even in education that students used to go to be taught. And mm -hmm. so often now the culture presumes that maybe students uh, already know. And uh, it's an interesting shift. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, certainly in my own experience, um, Callum, it would, it would not be the result of virtue on my part. Um, probably, as you mentioned at the start, that my background is in social anthropology. And my experience of doing doctoral fieldwork, for example, back in Scotland in the late 90s, was one of being humiliated by the field, whether I wanted it to or not. The idea that the field dominates you. So you might, you might spend a year, as I did, you might spend a year preparing to go into the field and you have worked out, developed hypotheses, but then you go into the field and the field doesn't care about your hypotheses 
The field will um, give you data that you don't want. It'll give you questions that you don't, you never thought to ask. So uh, certainly in my own experience, the field dominated. So any idea that I had about going to test some neatly worked out hypothesis, um, it was quickly blown apart actually. Reality is a graveyard of theory. Exactly. Let, let me give you a kind of concrete example of what I'm talking about. So my basic idea when I went into the field in the late 90s and the and the referendum to establish a Scottish parliament was just about to happen. So what I wanted to go into the field to, to, to do was to look at the relationship between class and national identity. So the Scots were about to mobilize and politicize their national identity, something they hadn't really done successfully for, you know, centuries. So I had this really nicely worked out idea of, you know, the synthesis of these two identities. But what I actually found when I started asking people was um, that they weren't nationalists at all. And that they had no real time for um, an overtly nationalist politics. So I had felt that I had wasted an entire year preparing to go into the field to research something that didn't actually exist. Now, the way I eventually got around it was to... to reframe what on earth nationalism is. You know, this idea that nationalism is a kind of card-carrying ideology, that if you ask people about it, they will tell you, yes, I am a nationalist. So I had to quickly um, realize that what nationalism is, is entirely different to how I had been told by reading books, nationalism is. So it's very much a kind of reality that operates in an anti-predicative, in a pre-ideological, in a, a non-ideational way. Now, to kind of get access to that level of reality, to, to, for me to understand that's what I should be doing as a humble researcher, it took, it took me, you know, that humbling experience to realize I had to quickly rethink um, what it was that I was trying to understand. So the field, um, by its silences, by its illusions, by its, um, you know, by the absence of, of any kind of immediate rapport and my humiliation, it made me go into a crisis to rethink so that's the kind of humility. It, it wasn't. It absolutely wasn't um, from any virtue, but the field dominating it. And that's something that I always say to my students. One of the um, one of my first questions I say to students who want to go into the field and produce some kind of an original data set or original insights is, don't tell me what you want to know. Tell me what contexts are you able to immerse yourself into. Um, because. If you want to get below the froth, you have to get below the kind of the frothy data, the kind of data that's immediately at hand. And that often means what kind of access to real live communities, locations, context does a student have? And oftentimes that is the best guide to what they might fruitfully um, turn into a research project. So this idea of, um, you know, um, the data is king, but to get to the data, you have to get to the context and context is king. Um, if you are an, an innocent bystander trying to observe a situation or a context, it's really, really difficult. You would have to do an ethnographic level of immersion to begin to uncover the, you know, the, the, deep, the deep data. If you are an undergraduate student and you only have a matter of months, um, you know, it's really difficult to do ethnographic level data if you're not already in some way immersed in that context. I have a question that's rather oblique, but it's it's not totally unrelated. So it's curious to me that at the very beginning of your research back in the 90s, you, you, you went out to the field to ask whether uh, uh, your uh, interlocutors held nationalist yes. sympathies or ideas, and, and they did not. And I'm struck now, it seems to me, and, and Callum, you can come in as well, but it seems to me that in the British press, in a time in which in public discourse, nationalism is a bête noire, right? Mm -hmm. Nationalism is something that is very much a, a concern, uh, both in the yes. United States and in Europe. But someone like Nicola Sturgeon would not often be described as a nationalist, right? She's the head of the SNP. She's a Scottish leader. She's the head of a party, but she's not categorized as a nationalist. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on, on how this... Uh... You're absolutely right, David. Um, I think Nicola Sturgeon is on record of having said it's unfortunate that the Scottish National Party is called the Scottish National Party. So she is very much aware of the, you know, the kind of the valences around the word nationalism. And, and they're not, uh, you know, normally people will say, you know, the classic, I'm a patriot, not a nationalist. I absolutely have no, you know, um, um, hesitation in calling myself a nationalist because by the word nationalist, I simply mean 
I am somebody who wants the nation and the state to be congruent. Mm. Now, that, that seems a quite inoffensive um, statement, but that's basically what I think a nationalist is. But you're absolutely right. It's been, you know, it's been captured, if you like, by a certain um, political point of view, so that it means something bad and nasty. Um, I think the one of the um, few years ago now, I published a text in a collection of books that looked at the relationship between class and nationalism. And I was the only um, case study that actually ar argued for a, a non-right-wing version of nationalism. So as if that's kind of, you know, that's okay. But you're right, uh, there is ideological capture around this word. And, um, and you know, lead classically, Christopher Harvey famously describes Scottish nationalism as the most um, um, best-behaved national movement in the history of the world. And he's absolutely right. People are hugely invested in making sure that it's civic, civic nationalism, it's not ethnic nationalism, etc. Um, but to be perfectly frank, I, I'm absolutely happy with all kinds of nationalism. I think civic nationalism, um, it's that kind of cleansing, you know, I, I was mentioning in my first answer to, to Callum that, you know, the field will dictate what your views should be if you are a good researcher. I'm not allowed to clean up nationalism if you know there's something if there's if there's kind of you know nasty and, and, and elements to it and um, that's intellectual dishonesty so um you know you have to give a, a warts and all view you can't once you start to to, to doctor and to kind of suit um, a, a certain ideological position then you're already losing the data and you're already your analysis is, is already going to be ideological so I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that yes, there are there there is a you know there's a wide spectrum of nationalism. There would be you know um, um, controversial aspects of Scottish nationalism that you know leaderships leaderships uh, uh, like the SNP would want to you know um, ignore or elide. But my job as a social researcher is to uh, you know is to uncover all of all aspects. It's interesting you mentioned there the uh, the rise of. Um uh, well, what you seem to be saying there implies uh, uh, something I've been noticing, that there's been a rise in the last few decades of sort of activist scholarship. Instead of scholarship that's positive, it's more normative, uh, even if that's deeply implied. And indeed, it often feels now with a lot of scholarship on a lot of issues, particularly in the social sciences, um, that there's almost an expectation that you have a normative position. So, for instance, you know, my work's on uh, the social impacts of climate change. It's very rare to find anyone working in that field who has an old school intellectual sensibility where they're interested first and foremost in rigor and the dissolution of paradox or the examination of paradox. Most people are seeking answers within the normative framing. They think mm -hmm. they, they already think they know what the answer is. Yeah. We just need to find the data to fit it. And, um, and I'm just wondering what you think of the, uh, the rise of you know, activist scholarship in this sense. And, and a sort of a, not even a very explicit sense, but it's almost like ambient in the, there's almost an expectation now that if you work in the social sciences, mm -hmm. you are some sort of activist, which I find, a f um, which seems to me uh, logically baffling, because surely before you have a, you, before you can say what ought to be, you need to know what is. Yeah, I mean, I would slightly disagree with the very last thing you said there, Callum. I don't think there is the expectation to be activist, but, but the de facto fact that, yes, a lot of it is activist. You're absolutely right. There's just simply no doubt about it. Um, and of course, sociologists, they've looked at that problem. And some American scholarship that I've looked at would say the generation that came into sociology in America, for example, in the 60s and 70s, on, you know, after the whole um, civil rights movements in Vietnam, etc., Sociology was seen as the discipline that would um, bring about this desired social change, this new future. So very much from the 60s and 70s, you know, the 60s and 70s would be the kind of the changeover point where you would have kind of very staid academic mainstream visions of what sociology is. And then this very activist, um, this kind of shift, that's when it happens. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course, it's, it's now true in the UK also. Um, and that is a huge, and it's an ongoing issue. Um, you could have a conversation as to whether it's increasing or not, but I think what's also increasing is a kind of reflexivity. People are aware of it. One of the ways in which sociology journals try to overcome this bias, they would ask of their um, contributors before any article to give a reflexivity statement. So you had to put your ideological cards on the table before you, you know, um, so that was one way you know, if I was a devout Catholic, became an atheist, and then I'm going to write a sociology of religion piece, so people would know where I'm coming from. 
Um, however, I think one of the problems that developed was that reflexivity statements became so bland, people actually became experts at hiding themselves in the very process of giving a reflexivity statement. So, um, you know, there, there wasn't an honest attempt to try to circumvent this, but you're right, it's, um, you know, sociology certainly has always recognized a problem of values. From the very get-go within sociology, people like Max Weber would say, look, um, sociology should be value-free. But if you read anything from Max Weber, there is no value, there, there no value-free evaluation of, you know, um, Germany in the 1920s. You know, um, it's just not there. But as a kind of philosophical statement, there is the ambition. But of course, performance-wise, it's extremely, extremely difficult to, you know, to, to not have Pierre Bourdieu, French sociologist, has always a wonderful phrase that I come back to often, and he says, each class habitus is fatal. You can always tell an author's class habitus, but if you read them long enough to find out the questions that they don't ask, the, the way they answer certain questions, you know, the kind of data that they think is, is convincing, etc. So I think you're absolutely right, um, Callum. Sociology has been, um, um, it's very, I would say it's, Okay, to use the word hijacked is too maybe too emotive, but um, you know, um, many many sociologists that I work with are, have absolutely no qualms whatsoever in describing their work as um, very much activist based. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm old enough to know uh, or to remember vaguely. There was a famous text written um, back in the seventies called "The History Man." And it was made into a three-part BBC um, television series, hugely successful. If you jump on YouTube and, and you type in the history man, you can see some of the, uh, the episodes. But it was all about this, um, in the 70s, this tremendous confidence that social scientists, sociologists in particular, had about the way the world was going to turn, what was going to happen next. The, kind of the, the, the main protagonist in this deeply satirical look at sociology um, is a sociologist, and what the author is parodying is precisely this unbelievably um, hubristic, um, utter self-confidence among a certain um, school of um, sociologists. And I would say, you know, it, it was at its height perhaps in the 70s and 80s, but I think, yes, it's still there, but I think maybe older, wiser heads have realized that um, you know, the great future that was predicted with great confidence in the 70s didn't happen. And, you know, sociology has part of the blame for that. Um, we were talking earlier on in Calum about one of the one of my texts that I always have my third year students read is Friedrich Hayek's 1974 acceptance speech of his Nobel Prize for Economics. And he has a wonderful title to that um, speech and he calls The Pretense of Knowledge. And he's deeply concerned. Hayek is one of the reasons why I love Hayek is because he's one of those rare intellectuals who is who's fantastic in economics, but he's wonderful in social theory as well. Um, and but his basic point is that it is extremely dangerous to have people imagining that they know things that they don't actually know. Because what they're, if if you are convinced that you know something, and you have a, and you're in a position of power you're going to do something with that position of power to make that world into what you think should be because you know things. Now, if it turns out that you don't know things at all because your epistemology, your, your ability to critique yourself is superficial, it is only at the frothy level, then you'll cause damage. You'll implement policies, you'll green light policies or courses of action that are, you know, whose consequences are probably um, not what you want, to say the least. Does this also in any way, I mean, this is rather a big question, but does this, in, you, you opened by talking about uh, methodology and me methodology turns upon at least the initial question, what do we want to know? Yeah. And some of the older cultures of knowledge believed that the things most worth knowing were the hardest to know, right? And I'm just curious whether this is even a sort of conviction that people now bring to their disciplines or whether we now have new sort of framing uh, ideas? Well, certainly from speaking for myself, David, um, you know, I, I mean, I have spent years of my life trying to immerse myself into a particular context. So I would be very sensitive to claims, you know. I mean, one of the interesting things, I think, when I'm doing a, a, a semi-structured interview with somebody, one of the things that's really interesting to find out about people is what they don't know. Is the questions they don't ask themselves because you, that, and it's, that also gives you an insight into 
what, what are preoccupying people or local cultures, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's a very, I, can, I think it's a very Scottish Enlightenment tradition to, to, to have a great sensibility to um, that ignorance is, is instructive. One of the, um, now we don't want to get too deep, but, um, you know, kind of a 16th century Jesuit like Molina or a, an 18th century um, Scottish philosopher like um, Adam Ferguson, they were extremely sensitive to what, what don't we know? You know, Molina, for example, was one of the very early people who said, it's impossible to know what the just price of a commodity is. Now, Molina knew that, you know, and yet Karl Marx, everything he writes, he talks, talks about a just price, etc. Well, you know, this idea that, you know, we're going to, we're trying to figure out what is the scientific way to, to know this, what is the, the adequate, the just, the fair price of something. So if you sit a student down and you say to them, do you know what the fair price is for a pint of milk? Now, that question could be quite humbling because they have to have, you know, it's, well, because what you're asking them is, where do you stand in this long intellectual tradition that asks the question, how on earth do you come to um, a, an exact price of something? Is that something that economics can tell you? This is the just price for a, a pint of milk today. So that could be a very humbling question um, because, you know, maybe you haven't asked that before or you have to then suddenly realize, well, actually, I have no idea of what my answer would, I want to say to you, yes, but actually, if I'm forced to explain my presuppositions, I can't do it. So that's one of the ways which, you know, um, asking questions is humbling. Asking simple questions is humbling. What is a just wage? Can I just throw in the, the, your question about is it not the goal to assess or to examine what is most hard? And I think there's a new, uh, well, there's an interesting question to be asked about what we mean by something being hard. Until recent years, I assume what was hard was uh, finding the data for something, you know, coming up with a robust methodology for examining the data. But increasingly, what I'm realizing in the, in the age where society is politically polarizing like it is now, what is most hard is less offering new data and more challenging a prevailing frame of reference. Um, because, I mean, I'm not here going, talking about cancel culture per se, but there is a strong sense of social uh, censure around many topics now. Mm -hmm. And there is always that fear of um, ostracism. And of course, when we talk about cancel culture, uh, there's an old word for it, and it's existed in every usually uh, small scale society, which is ostracism. You're sent out to the woods and tarred and feathered. And it's interesting, I remember 20, 30 years, or well, 20 years ago when I was a kid, you'd read about, or even 30 years ago, you know, you'd read about uh, you know, the Soviet Union and you'd read about um, uh, contexts where, or just non-Western countries often where there was this sense of people being ostracized for things, mm -hmm. for things that seemed perfectly, just having perfectly normal views. And you thought that could never happen here. But increasingly, I think across the political spectrum, actually, it's happening here in many contexts. And I do think certainly in, in academia often, it's very hard to articulate a challenge to a frame of reference. For example, what I mean, in the climate debate, the science of climate change is pretty good, I think. The social science for climate change is, as one professor I know described, uh, a friend of mine, he said, it's basically astrology. It's extremely ambiguous as to what we really mean by climate adaptation, for instance, because it's less a concern for the science of things. It's more a concern for the nature of people. And I think the climate debate is often defined less by a rich science and more by an impoverished understanding of how people react to the world sometimes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you challenge, so the climate debate is polarized, of course, into the sort of believers and the de deniers. But there's actually a perfectly valid uh, position to say, I accept the science. I accept we're responsible for climate change. But in a sense, so what? You know, how does that change the calculus of our public policy and how we deal with human problems? To what extent can we identify climate as an important variable in the experience of problems people face? It could be poverty, it could be many things. And um, But as soon as you start challenging uh, less the answers people are providing, but more the framing of the questions, mm -hmm. it's very, you have to be, I have to be extremely cautious that I'm not then tarred and feathered as a climate denier or something, or having some ulterior agenda, when all I'm interested in is not an activist sense of the outcome, but I'm interested in rigor of our questions. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I find often what's most hard now uh, is less a case of how do I get the data? It's more a question of 
how do I frame, like, so it's not so much how do I get the answer, it's how do I frame the question? Indeed, how do I even point out to people there's maybe an alternative way of framing the question without provoking them into the sense of a, of it being a partisan attack, you know? How to, how to, how, and this is the major problem now, how the, the, the prevailing frames of reference are so dominant in the culture, you are very quickly siloed into one or the other, yeah. and they're always countervailing. But how do you articulate yourself in the society without being pigeonholed in that way? For me, that's the main problem now and what's hard uh, in thinking. Um, and, and I'll add additionally to this that something I've noticed with um, people who are conservative speaking in the public space, sometimes I feel, um, uh, if you look at certain right-wing actors, often I feel they are, uh, that there are deeper truths in what they're saying. But often when they're being interviewed, they, they do end up in bad faith argument, ad hominem reactions. But I, something occurred to me recently that maybe that's because if you're speaking in an environment where it's not just uh, where you're fighting a frame of reference, where the entire spirit of the discussion is hostile to you, you will get tense and you'll end up in frustration having bad faith arguments because someone is trying to accept you in a good faith way in, as you articulate yourself. And uh, and I wonder how much, uh, and it's really it's highlighted for me this the challenge of a frame of reference and how you fight against it is mm. is uh, it yeah. seems to be the prevailing problem today. No, I, I totally agree with that, Callum. I mean, I work in a university. I, I work with a bunch of sociologists, psychologists, and of course, um, sociologists and psychologists. They're very good at um, demonstrating empirically how you know students are very much um, group level um, beings. You know, we, we are religious. The group runs really deep. You know, before we are an I, we are a we. So, uh, you know, there's all kind of tricks that lecturers can use about, um, you know, um, like I, I would say to my, I ask my students a question about, you know, um, I would ask a very innocuous question about something on television or something. And everybody is, is happy to put their hand up and to say, yes, I saw that. That was really interesting. And then you ask them, how many of you are intellectuals? Now, when you ask that to 17, 18 year olds, they're extremely conscious because if you say you're an intellectual, you're automatically stepping away from the group. You're automatically saying something about yourself and you're automatically placing yourself in a hierarchy at the top end. So the, the point is, that even when you're, you're, you're standing in front of people who are studying the social influences upon behavior, what I then say to them is that your very reluctance to put your hand up is an, is an empirical example that I've just proven that you're guided by uh, you know, um, um, social pressure, peer pressure. So, Callum, th this uh, this inability to kind of go against a group is eternal. We're never going to get rid of it. But I do think you're right to highlight it is now at a different level. And I think one of the reasons for that is we're such a media-saturated culture just now that opinions are instant, access to opinions are instant, reactions to opinions are instant. And scrutiny of your opinions is universal. Yeah. You put a tweet out, the whole yeah. world can see it. And, it, and you have these Twitter storms and you have these kind of social media storms. So everything is kind of, um, you know, media driven. There's a kind of frenzy, an artificial frenzy that perhaps wasn't true. Well, that absolutely wasn't true a generation ago. So there are things that are absolutely, um, you know, the same, but there are absolutely new, new realities uh, um, in terms of this um, an inability to kind of think beyond a, a paradigm. It's always going to be difficult. But especially when it's so politicized, um, it's, you know, it's kind of, everything is weaponized. Each position is, is weaponized. My own students, um, when you get them into second, third, fourth year, when they get a bit of confidence, hopefully a university is the place where they can learn that confidence to go deeper and ask the questions that, that they're not allowed in that kind of, you know, the more frenetic uh, um, context. Um, and I suppose, you know, that's, that, that's the hope that students are able to kind of name the fear of asking questions that are, you know, not, um, if you like, sanctioned, and they, they get the confidence to, you know, to have their doubts, but then to kind of put their doubts into words. For example, I have students who are fourth-year students, and for example, I, I have um, a student who wants to look at far, the far right in Europe, and he has an intellectual interest in trying to understand the sociology of the far right, so he wants to, you know, jump into the whole question of the crisis of liberal democracy, etc. But as I chat to my students, they're they're almost apologetic about their interest in this question because it's so highly charged. So he has like two voices going on, having a conversation all the time. Intellectually, he thinks it's an interesting thing that as a sociologist he should be looking at, and of course he's right. But he has this other non-sociologist voice in his head that says, hmm, this is politically suspect. 
If I even ask these questions, just like you're referring to, Khan, I'll be tarred and feathered as if some kind of, you know, um, um, fringe lunatic um, 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 individual. This does seem to me a big change that there used to be a healthy debate over whether we agree with one's answers. But the notion that we disagree with you even asking the question seems to be a new pathology, which is much more uh, insidious. Uh, because, it, you know, if we can't ask questions, then uh, that really is the silencing of, of, of thinking. Yeah. And, uh, and most of us, I mean, I'm, certainly my experience in life is, you know, I, I, uh, I, I usually work out eventually what I think by, by eliminating all the options that I, I, that I get wrong, you know, just by, I, I do things very wrong until it's right, you know, so I have to make mistakes. Yeah. And it seems to be in a culture now that we're, we're, we're refusing to, I mean, this is part of the, uh, the Jonathan Hyatt thing, I think about the, the, of students no longer being that open to failure. And, uh, and I think that, I mean, it's a, there's this old idea of there being an open and a closed mindset, right? So people who are open to new ideas and they identify themselves with trying to learn something new and people who identify themselves as being uh, very, uh, um, very uh, already having the answer. It seems to me that there is a, um, a, a yeah, a I would of, agree with that. Yeah. I think Callum, there's, what is, there's always been a link, a kind of philosophical link between um, search for knowledge and um, goodness or virtue. I'm a big fan of Alistair McIntyre, and he makes this point relentlessly that the pursuit of knowledge is a moral pursuit, and it, it costs. If you're going to know something interesting, you know, you can look at the, the contents of a telephone book. All the contents are absolutely true, but there's absolutely nothing interesting in it. If you're going to actually find out something that's new and interesting and original, it's going to make a cost. And but, so McIntyre has this kind of broad philosophical point, but the culture means it's even more difficult now because you have to exercise virtue to ask these questions. You know, it costs you something. There's a kind of social, if like, cost involved in asking questions that are um, not not consecrated by the culture. You know, you know, you, you can ask certain questions and everybody will automatically see the sense in your question and think, oh, well done, that's fantastic. But to ask those questions that nobody else wants to ask, to ask the questions and pr to pursue questions that no funder will fund mm. you know so you know th there is a price to be paid so i do think there is a there's all kinds of people just now who are writing books uh, about how you know it, it, there is a moral courage is required in, in a particular time because it's um you know it, certain kinds of areas of investigation and knowledge are, are, are almost kind of being taboo so to kind of transgress you have to be just as you were my just as you were describing a kind of person that is prepared to pay that that the cost of transgressing the group this is uh kind of related i think to what both of you have said but you uh introduced the the great title by hayek the pretense of knowledge yeah. and i'm just curious um both in terms of kind of uh, a fear of asking certain questions and the idea of taboo topics and so on and so forth is there also a pretense of ignorance that you have encountered oh that's an interesting question um the short answer is absolutely there is, David. I mean, as a sociologist, the data is in, you know, we've been trying, you know, since the introduction of the, in the UK of the National Health Service, you know, 70 odd years ago, the data is in uh, about, you know, for example, all of the attempts at socioeconomic equality, for example. I mean, I, okay, I'll, I'll try to be moderate in my, in my expression of it, but given all the data that's in, to pretend that you can still go into engineer social equality, to me, it's, it's, it's built, you must know the data. So to still have that as some kind of goal for social science, more broadly speaking, or for politics, um, that to me strains credulity. So I, I would begin to think, well, this person is arguing in bad faith, you know, um, pretending that um, they don't know something as, as if, you know, they're kind of, they're freshly new to this ambition of, uh, you know, the classless society. I mean, the last time I ever heard a politician speak with any kind of good faith about the classless society or the notion that we can arrive at, a, you know, a kind of some kind of socioeconomic equality was John Major back in the early 1990s. Now, I would I would ask, you know, when was the last time you ever heard a politician even use that phrase? And it seemed clearly they know something. And in sociology and social sciences, you know, what on earth becomes of sociology or social sciences if we have to give up that prized myth that, you know, ever since 1789 has been fueling so many sociological fantasies of what the future might look like? 
just have a pivoting what you just said about class and and linking it to what you said about Hayek before is that uh, one theme that has been coming through for me uh, speaking to you recently is this theme of of cultural forgetting. Now, what I mean by this is that you know we, there's a there's a common concern in the culture now increasingly because it's been an entire uh, sacrum, an entire eighty year cycle since the war that increasingly the new generation do not really know what fascism is and it's returning in certain ways. Uh, the same, I think, when you're talking about, uh, we talked before about you are old enough to know about, to remember sort of the uh, the more Marxist uh, mm-hmm. cycles and those things are um, in, coming back in, in new ways. But, but additionally, uh, when you mentioned Hayek, I mean, in Hayek's Nobel Prize paper, after you talked about it, I went and had a look at it. And he's really criticizing scientism, this mm-hmm. idea that science isn't just a guide to the facts, but a guide to the values that should uh, the values we should have to organize our society. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that the 20th century in academia that was in, in philosophy of science, there's a great literature on scientism, on looking at the looking at the limits of science, the concern and implications of its overreach or consequences of its overreach. But it seems that now in many of the discussions, you can look at the discussion around climate or COVID particularly, we have a lot of scientific thinking. It's like when we hear that the government saying we are guided by, you know, the science. The science may well be very good on, on, for instance, the virus, for instance, climate change. But the question of, say, the proportionality of lockdown is simply is not a scientific question. That's not to have a view on whether there should or shouldn't be lockdowns. But it's to say it's a question of values, subjective understandings of risk, mm-hmm. things which are simply not scientific questions. And it seems yeah. to have been excised from the discussion. So we seem to be forgetting the lessons about the limits of science, which scientists themselves were great advocates uh, for people understanding because science, you know, good scientists are rigorous. They don't want people to use and abuse the, the idiom, the motif of science. But another area of forgetting that you came up with there was when you talked about John Major being the last politician to talk about class. What's happened to class as a, as a frame of reference? Because so often now we hear about social injustice very rarely is the main uh, variable in how people frame it being class-based. But it still seems to me not only, uh, I mean, it's obviously not perfect, but it's obviously, I think it's a much more accurate frame of reference or or theme of analysis for understanding uh, various forms of uh, suffering. uh, uh, But also uh, one that's more useful. It's It's one that's actionable arguably at the political economic level. So through these examples here, particularly sort of scientism and class, I suppose my theme here is, you know, the, the we seem as a culture to be forgetting in the digital age all the lessons we'd accrued through the 20th century, mm-hmm. all the things that gave us the wisdom of humility, you know, to recognize that science cannot explain everything and, and so on. And the, the, these lessons seem to be completely going out the window. And I'd wonder if you'd agree with that. And also, if you do, I mean, what do you think accounts for that shift, that that cultural forgetting? I think that you're absolutely right, Callum. There has been a tremendous, um, you know, the generations succeed each other. Um, you know, the, the great motivating force for, you know, so much of the 20th century was the, the war against, you know, you know, famously, you know, in the Beveridge Report, the, the tremendous mobilization of brains and um, financial power and, um, you know, policy thinking to overcome squalor, poverty, lack of housing, ignorance and, and, and health, etc. But, but the fundamental re- revolution that's happened in the, over the course of the 20th century is that we've more or less conquered all of these great motivating um, um, realities. You know, way back in 1905, Kropotkin wrote a famous book called The Conquest of Bread. Well, we have conquered bread. We are the, the only society in human history that has now put behind us these fundamental questions that so many of our ancestors kind of you know struggled with all, all of their lives. And that fundamentally means that, that we are in a new era of history. I, I, what I say to my students is, look, um, I can never reproduce the politics of my communist grandfather or my left of center father, because my social existence, my social conditions are fundamentally different. So we're now the great problem for young people is the great motivating thing is what does a meaningful life look like for me how do i get one and that is a huge shift so um, you know for you know once you're an affluent generation once you are an once you are from birth affluent um, you are already um, that politics that has went before has is entirely forgotten 
It has no relevance to you whatsoever. You are now going to a completely different um, era of human history. And, you know, political parties have to catch up with that. You know, we see it all over Europe. You have kind of classical left-wing social democratic parties that were founded in what Ulrich Beck calls the Society of Scarcity. And they have no idea what, what they're for anymore. Because, you know, you can have, you know, like um, the most unskilled labourers, they head off for their two weeks in the Algarve for their, their, their bachelor party golfing for two weeks. You know, and that's an unskilled labourer. So affluence has absolutely entered into their lives and it's transformed everything. And I think, you know, if you're old enough, you realise this, this is a fantastic shift. But one of the things for young people is that it really does open up new tasks and responsibilities um, that are absolutely new. You know, um, sociologists talk about the burdens of freedom. You know, so we spent so long trying to get to this level of reality. And now that we've achieved it, we have younger generations then, you know, this notion of the burden of um, liberty and the burden of having to, um, you know, the, the, um, the models that were um, available previously in previous generations, um, they are forgotten, but they're also more or less irrelevant because the questions are radically new, the social conditions of existence are radically new. And, you know, every kid, in, you know, I, I now teach, since a couple of years ago, I now teach genuine third, third millennials, uh, third millennium students born in the year 2000 and whatever. And um, man, it's really humiliating enough in the classical sense of that word to, to see what these kids don't know. And as an educator, it's um, my job is more important than ever before because um, the amount of forgetting is, is astonishing. We could get into all kinds of stuff, but the chains of memory have been broken in so many ways. Um, you know, r religion, dead. Christianity, dead. The chains of memory in terms of locality, dead, gone. You know, when I come from, uh, you know, my expertise is in locations characterized by deindustrialization. The amount, the caesura that goes on from, say, kids born from the 60s and 70s is astonishing o over all kinds of levels, you know. So um, there's a kind of violent forgetting that's going on because of the violent changes. It's interesting that there's that old phrase of, um, of politics, of uh, politicians focusing on bread and butter issues. And that phrase is now quite anachronistic, actually, come to think of it, because who now talks about bread and butter? There's a pretty obvious thing yeah. to be available, but the... But I wonder what the, if someone was going to have a slogan like that now that wasn't using that idiom, I wonder what they'd use. I'm not quite sure, Callum, but the last time I heard bread and butter actually being uttered in a political debate was um, by one of the, the leaders of the Scottish Labour Party. And they always wanted to deflect attention from the constitutional issue. And they always wanted to get back to bread and butter issues. The, the Labour Party is, in Scotland is a fantastic example of um, kind of King Canute-like politics, wanting to stem the tide of this new, you know, what, as a generation, as a culture, as a people, what do you do when you solve the fundamental problem of material existence? Well, you then politicise the, the conditions of cultural existence. Now, if you're a, a Labour Party who has, you know, your whole raison d'etre had been, let's solve the material question. Now, when that's solved, you know, you're now facing a brand new world where you're obsolete. If, unless you can answer the question of, okay, what's after bread and butter? <laughs> what Jam. Does, yeah, you know, <laughs> what, does, what does cake with scones uh, look like, you know? Um, because that, you know, as I mentioned, um, that is the new, what you now need to offer uh, a population or an electorate is something much more. And of course, what we do see, you were mentioning it before, David, the politicization of culture and national identity. That's the obvious example of what a population does when they, they're able, you know, they're affluent enough to be able to mobilize something more than material conditions or start to complain about material or sorry, cultural conditions. Um, and well, as, you, as you were rightly referring to, um, Callum, the, the whole politicization of culture is, um, you know, that's we just swim in it all the time today. I'm interested in the idea. I mean, this phrase you use, chains of memory, is very evocative and very strong. And you, you mentioned both secularization and the university. And I, I, I think the the kind of the sacred quality of memory is quite strong and self-evident in the church. I mean, one of the, the great sacraments, of course, is the Eucharist. Remember his death, right? The, mm -hmm. there, there is a, a work of memory, which yes. is at the very heart of the, the Christian institutions, the church. Yes. 
Um, but I'm, I'm also interested in the institutional, I mean, the rapid decline or deconstruction of the humanities being a sign, a, a kind of objective indicator of the caesura the, the you're talking about. Do you, do you see this? When you see, when you see the, the decline of the humanities, uh, David, what do you mean? The well, I, I mean, institutionally, humanities faculties are being reconfigured in uh, ways that often weaken their uh, their standing and positions are not being renewed even at I, I have a friend who's a professor of uh, modern intellectual history at Cambridge and she was talking about the fact that in her own faculty when certain uh, chairs retire they they might not find successors and so on and so forth what's well, been happening I think the University of uh, I think it's Leicestershire uh, they uh, they just disbanded their entire medieval history faculty last year okay. but I think that the the humanities are just being etiolated at the moment and uh, and what I've noticed as well um, is that if you look at the social sciences, being a social scientist who, uh, in general, is no longer a thing, you now have a theme already. You, you're giving your frame of reference from the get-go. So increasingly, there, you know, you look at the degrees that are on offer. You no longer do a degree in, uh, you know, social science methodology or sociology. You do a degree in um, uh, development studies or migration studies or uh, global governance studies, and it's already. Uh, or, 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 these, all these themes are already preloading the theme as the frame of reference, but that surely creates a bit of a problem because what if the the real thing that needs to be done is to critique and challenge that frame of reference? Um, an example for me would be when you look again, look at climate change. I find it very interesting now that a lot of anthropologists study climate change, but they have a presumption that the nature of how we understand climate change is an objective scientific concept, not one that's mediated through various cultural understandings and so on. So they come with it saying, let's take our concern about climate change and look at how people in Papua New Guinea are reacting to it. But what an anthropologist would have done 20 or 30 years ago, I, I think, mm -hmm. is to say, hmm, it's interesting how we think about climate in our culture. And there would have been a sort of critique. The, there wouldn't have been an assumption that the category was an essential category that we need to then look at its practical implications. Mm -hmm. It would be looking at how have we come to this category being so essential. That's how anthropologists would have looked at it 30 years ago as anthropologists. But now you are an anthropologist of the environment or something. So it, it seems to me that the humanities are etiolating. Chairs are not being renewed. But at the same time, what remains are very thematically bounded understandings of the social science, which for me, in binding it in that way to a theme, is almost anti it's not rigorous. It's, it's already presuming a label, a framing, which is already quite normative because you're assuming there is value in that framing. So it's uh, this is the problem I see with. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question, David. I wish I had more for you, but I think in my own institutional context, we don't have a, a large arts department uh, or, or school, if you like, at all. So I'm maybe behind the curve on that. But of course, you know what I am. You know, we all know about this. You know, there was this great kind of um, expressed concern about the rise of um, degree programs that were less than. Um, um, you know, didn't have a great pedigree and, you know, people get terribly um, 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 defensive, etc. So, yeah, I think there is absolutely, that is a tremendous way in which kind of whole disciplinary memories are lost, you know. Um, I mean, could you imagine a history, a, a university that doesn't teach history? It's almost like, well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of unthinkable. But then again, perhaps that just dates me. A little anecdote, I remember the very first time I, I got a job as an academic university of Glasgow. School of Education. And I remember this was um, 2006, seven, And I remember there was in, in the, the huge library that they have um, in, in Glasgow, there was, I think, an entire floor dedicated to Cold War studies. Now, an entire floor, I mean, it, it, that is, an, we're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands of texts. And I remember thinking to myself, as a kind of upstart, you know, 2007, all these books will get pulped soon. That entire um, tradition is going to be replaced by other subjects with literature that wants to, to, to replace it. You know, so it'll get remaindered away down to some kind of basement, you know, four miles outside of the city or something. So, you know, that entire, you know, tradition, I mean, you know, God knows if it will get digitized or, or whatever. But yeah, I, I think there is a tremendous, um, you know, it's a fantastic question, this notion of, um, you know, communities of forgetting, communities of, of remembering. And you know you need a you need a 
you need what, what Peter Brigger calls a structure of plausibility to remember anything, you know, to have a, people around you that know your name to remember, you know, it's as basic as that. It's astonishing the, um, you know, what the group is able to keep in existence. And if the group becomes fractured, um, you know, then the ability to hold on to stuff. The individual is, 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 is really, uh, it's, uh, it's not good at remembering and preserving. The group is where, um, you know, cultures, um, you know, do the work of remembering. That, that's where the soul is, you know. But we could get into all kinds of interesting stuff. It's a great question. I love it. There's an interesting idea in that that links to the conversation we had the other night, which is that, um, you know, we, we live in an age where the shibboleths of it are change, disruption, revolution. Mm. We hear there's whole, the major industry now in the world, the, the, the sexy industry everyone wants to work for is, you know, Silicon Valley disrupting things. And it's interesting that the, you know, we, we all, you know, the, the classic thing about bringing up your children is you tell them, and I remember my generation being told that you, you're going to change the world. But it's interesting, no one says to their kids, you should preserve the world because the, the economy is already changing the world uh, because it's the sort of planned obsolescence built into this rapacious market economy or this neoliberal sort of market economy. And, uh, and it seems to me that uh, so much of the, the uh, loss of memory is perhaps because so many of these industries uh, are parasitic. If you look at the Airbnb model or you look at the... Uh, uh, well, Airbnb is actually a good example. Airbnb presumes that, that a culture has already over hundreds of years built beautiful cities, built houses with rooms. So they're not having to invest in building the hotels and so on and training the staff. They, they are parasitic on the fact that there's been this continuous memory of beautiful architecture and houses being built because people need, you know, um, a local community needs to live there. And suddenly this app is built, which uh basically is presuming all of that stuff already exists and it comes in and, and and reaps a profit off it for the person who built the app and makes it cheaper for the consumer but it's not feeding the actual infrastructure that makes it possible i suppose similar with uber and and uh, mm -hmm. but so many things in the culture uh seem to be like this where they're parasitic on the previous culture and but no one really knows about it you know no one has an investment you know airbnb has no particular interest in preserving the buildings they're renting out you know, because if, if the person, if the room's no longer valid, they'll just move on to the next building. You know, someone else will have an, an Airbnb account. And so it's interesting for me that the there's so much of the culture now, it's not simply not taking part in the tradition of local culture. It's actually parasitic upon it and it's consuming it and leaving it a husk, it seems mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Because I mean, Venice is a good example. I went to Venice a couple of years ago, having not been for about 15 years. And obviously Venice has been getting more and more touristy for a long, long time, 100 years probably. But going in 2018 was actually very depressing because there's virtually no Venetians left there at all. And almost every house where someone was living, they're now living on the on the um, uh, mainland. And I'd rented an Airbnb there. And the woman came to let me into the Airbnb. And I said, so do you live in Venice? And she goes, well, I used to live here, but now I live on the mainland and I rent this out. So Venice is now a complete husk. Mm. It's literally like the, exo the, the beautiful buildings, like the exoskeleton <laughs> of a of a dead beetle, you know, and all the soft inner stuff that animated that beetle is gone. All the people have left. Mm. And that's almost entirely because of the acceleration of it is because of this technology we have. So now you go to Venice, it looks like Venice in a picture postcard <laughs> way, but it's not Venice. You know, there's nothing left yeah. of the culture. And that seems to be so much a symptom of the technology we have now. And it's breaking that memory because if there's no longer someone who remember, who is trained to, uh, to, to, to work in some capacity in Venice by the previous generation or didn't apprentice there in some way, uh, then that memory is all lost, that continuity is lost. Yeah, I think it's a great question, Callum, to ask somebody um, what would they preserve because it is, your answer has to be so personal. It's a great way to, 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 to ask somebody what do they value, what are their values? And, you know, when I think of, of my students and this whole question that David's mentioning about memory, it's a great way to... Our culture is so disorganized around, you know, um, culture. You know, we absolutely in the West do not have a, a sacred canopy. Um, if you ask students um, what do they believe in, they find that question actually uh, quite disturbing. They find the question really difficult to, to answer, especially if you were to ask them, you know, in, even in a, in a small group seminar setting. Because it really asks them to, to be an individual. Because they come from a culture that is deeply fragmented, 
when you say, I value this and that, you're becoming an individual. So you're stepping outside the group because it's really difficult to give the safe answer. So if you really had to answer it personally, <clears throat> excuse me, then, you know, it kind of, it's, it's a great question to make visible what's normally invisible, our lack of coherence around these issues, you know. Um, Western society is super organized, super mobilized around all the questions of the economy, um, et cetera. But if we ask, is, is there the same level of mobilization and concern and policymaking about culture, about questions of, you know, what's the meaning for life, what should we preserve? Um, everybody starts fighting. That's a great way to kind of start a fight, you know, but it, it, if you're trying to be um, reflect, reflective with, you know, so, um, sociology students, you're, you're asking them to think, what are the cultural conditions in which we live in? What are they? Why, why are we divided? What happened? If we weren't always like this, then how did we get here? And then, of course, the idea hopefully is that, well, let's sit and think about it and d devote an hour to what, what, what might what has to happen? What new structures of plausibility do we need to put together in order to at least have consensus about these are the questions that this seminar, this organization, this group is going to, you know, you know, to ask and answer? Um, you know, perhaps a bit like what we're doing just now um, at the Danube Institute. Um, you know, we have a, a cultural work to do. The, I just want to come back to, to one thing uh, uh, just as we come to the end is... Um, uh, we, you mentioned that nationalism is no longer a right-wing phenomenon and at the, near the beginning. And I, I think this is interesting, obviously, in the context of Brexit. I mean, I grew up in near Whitehaven in the north of England. Um, and uh, uh, and it's a very, you know, it's an area that voted, the constituency my mm -hmm. parents live in, is a, it's been, it was voted Labour for uh, 80 years, I think, until mm -hmm. 2017, it finally voted Conservative. And of course, there's this red wall idea that uh, all these uh, uh, people who have been traditional Labour voters voting for the Conservative Party because the Conservative Party mm -hmm. would quote unquote get Brexit done, and uh, so it is an interesting uh, case of of nationalism yeah. no longer being so easy to pigeonhole in terms of its politics, and um, and I'm wondering what what your thoughts and uh, and study of nationalism. I, I was really intrigued with what you were saying about. Studying nationalism up close really dissolved. I think a lot of the assumptions and uh, the theories yes. you read about nationalism. Yeah. So, what do you make of uh, Brexit in light of that? What do you well, think is the wellspring of it? Um, what, one of one of the um, curiosities or um, ironies that the, the whole Brexit um, campaign threw up for um, Scottish nationalists in Callum was that all of the arguments that you know Nigel Farage was making were extremely familiar to the ones we were making. You know, the notion of a democrat democratic deficit being ruled by elites, you know, uh, so they, they need to organize and to mobilize politically in order to, you know, to reverse that, that, that situation. Westminster being Brussels, essentially. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so structurally, um, um, Brexit made all kinds of sense uh, to a Scottish nationalist. Um, you know, the English are very good at breaking from um, political unions they don't want to be part of anymore. <laughs> I wish the Scots were as equally... Uh, <laughs> But, um, but the part about your parents' constituency, <clears throat> Callum, yeah, I mean, you know, I can be touching this before. There is a real crisis as to what on earth um, classical social democratic left-wing political parties are for anymore. Once the economy delivers affluence to everybody, more or less, what are they for? The reason that they were they were brought into existence no longer exists. So obviously they have to reinvent themselves. And of course, in that process, um, they become alienated insofar as they, they, they make fresh approaches to a kind of maybe, maybe a, a more bourgeois, more, um, a more affluent working class. They lose traditional working class voters en masse because they're no longer articulating a kind of cultural vision that they're able to identify with. Now, part of that, I think, is inevitable. Um, you know, I mean, there's, 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 it's just inevitable that um, you're not going to be able to appeal to, you know, uh, an older working class generation that was, you know, born into kind of relative scarcity. Um, you'll have new younger generations that can't really speak meaningfully to an older generation. So you, you will have that, um, um, uh, if you like, that leakage from Labour parties. But I think the real problem why it was such a disaster in, in the English context was because, um, you know, the cleavage was so great. I mean, you know, the... Some of the difficulties, for example, that Keir Starmer gets gets himself involved with in terms of answering questions from journalists, and 
you know, your average working class person who listens to that, who voted Labour all their lives, I mean, there is very, very little chance that they're going to identify with, you know, a very kind of soft centre left, um, or, or is, is it even left anymore to call the Labour Party? I'm not quite sure. Um, you know, every every four or five years, you know, the, um, the, the populace gets the opportunity to vote for radical change. It doesn't. It doesn't take the opportunity. Um, most people are happy, I think, to have this, you know, the free market society mixed with a tremendously generous welfare state in the UK. So, um, yeah, I think it's um, going forward. I think the that's why the the social democratic tradition is much more in a crisis, and the the more you know the centre right is much more comfortable with this change because um, um, you know it's not as if, for example, the, the Tory Party was founded to solve the problem of poverty, um, so they are they're automatically an advantage once that issue is solved. Well, that's great. So. Thank you very much, Paul. This has been a fascinating conversation, and perhaps we can do another one uh, in right. the future. Thank you, Colin. And Thank you're here you. for another couple of weeks, and then back to uh, back to Edinburgh. Take back it. to Edinburgh, back to Queen Margaret. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, thank you also to David as well. This has been our first of this series, so we'll be doing more. So keep an eye um, on the uh, uh, you know, hit uh, like and subscribe. And um, thank you very much to uh, the listeners for listening, and thank you to both of you.